something that's, that's said about Jesus in the Gospels that's it's pretty convicting for, for anybody. It says that G, uh, Luke records this. That Jesus would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. Not just that he was known to do that, but he would often withdraw to these lonely places and pray. And when you read something like that, I know it can hit you at a, a number of levels of that's, I wish that were more true of me, or um, I wish I had that kind of solitude and built it into my life more, but also, uh, oh, to have heard him. And there are a few snippets of his you know, quotes of his prayers that you get in the gospel, but not much. But this chapter, John 17, it's been called the high priestly prayer, meaning that Jesus as the ultimate high priest, not the earthly priest that came and went, but the ultimate high priest for all time, this is him praying on his own behalf, and then on behalf of just those original disciples, the apostles. But then at the end of the prayer, and this is really what we're going to focus on, he prays for people who haven't been born yet. He's praying for the people who, and this really this reflects what Marius was saying, is this huge story over thousands of years, the people who are going to become like this group I'm looking at right now, who've believed what Jesus has said, and have come to believe what His apostles have said. And now there are people. And I, I want you to think about this. this. This text is really unique. It's as if we are peering over Jesus' shoulder. And even though He's not using our particular names, if, you're, if you are part of the church, and not just this one, but the Lord's church, you're hearing Him praying for us. And he's doing this as he is just getting closer and closer to an unjust arrest and an unfair trial and torture and death. He is praying for us. John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus has prayed for himself. He's prayed for those first disciples and then he prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for we who are distracted, for we who have busy, restless hearts, calm us. Make what we are about to hear, may it be seen for what it is, something so beautiful that it naturally has the power to captivate our minds and our hearts and our hopes and our energy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A book that uh, I see quoted from time to time. You may have read parts of this in school at some point or, or seen it referred to. Is a book by a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville called Democracy in America. And it was written in the 1800s, really the early 1800s. Uh, the United States was still a fairly new project. And this man from France came over for an extended visit to this new country, and he reflected on what he observed. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is how much in the United States he saw individualism. Now, when you hear the word individualism, I don't know how that hits you or what you think about. You may think about somebody who's just always by themselves, and so they're just being an individual by themselves. But He defines what he means by individualism. Listen to this. Wrong piece of paper. All right, here's what he says. Individualism is a mature and calm feeling which disposes each member of the community to sever himself from the mass of his fellow creatures and to draw apart with his family and friends so that after he has thus formed a little circle of his own, He willingly leaves society at large to itself. Now, I read that for the first time about 10 years ago, and it just stopped me in my tracks. Because, when I, again, when I heard the word individualism, I tended to think of somebody who's just so arrogant, they almost don't give themselves over to anybody. It's just, well, I'm interested in what I like, and I don't care what anybody else thinks. And he says, no, that's not what I mean by individualism. I mean, when you kind of look at the world at large and you very maturely, calmly, he says it's a mature and calm feeling, you look at all the people and you circle up with those who are already your family and friends and you leave everybody else to just themselves. And I thought about that quote when I was having coffee just this past week with a guy. Uh, I would describe this guy as a definite rising young leader in Greenville. He's not a member of this church. If you're wondering, is that me when I met with him? Am I I a rising young leader? There's no one in the room. I'm a rising young leader. Uh, But but we were just, just, I was picking his brain about Greenville, and he grew up here too, so he's not a transplant like me. He's got, for a young man, a lot of context here. But we were talking about downtown. And we were talking about, is downtown really diverse or not? And he made a great observation. He said, my experience, now again, his words, not mine. He said, my experience is that in Greenville, diversity is from nine to five. 
And what he went on to say is that, you know, increasingly businesses and institutions and nonprofits recognize that we don't just need a room when we come around the table where every person looks the same or is the same gender or the same race or, or whatever. So let, let's try to figure out smart ways to bring all kinds of different people around the table because that's part of what makes our country great. It makes Greenville great. There can be pragmatic reasons. It'll make our business better, our nonprofit better. But he shrewdly put his finger on something, and that is that when we leave the nonprofit or we leave work or we go back to our room from whatever project we're doing together, we default back to what comes naturally. And it is basically what de Tocqueville said. Now, that gives you a window into understanding why over and over and over in two millennia of the church, just about every attempt to achieve greater visible unity in the Christian church is a flop. Almost every way of trying it or doing it is a flop. But it's the very thing that Jesus is praying for is that the church, and again, He is looking ahead into the millennia. He's looking, in a sense, at this room. And he's praying that we'll have it. Now, that means, in a way, we've, we've got our, our work cut out for us. How do we become what he's praying for? So, here's what I want to look at briefly. Is First off, what's he praying for? We've already said that. Um, how does it come about? How do you achieve it? If we're naturally inclined to just sort of huddle up, circle our wagons with the people we already know and love, and let other people work their own lives out. And then what does it mean to live it out? All right, what does Jesus pray for? Again, we've said this, but I I want you to hear it. Because it may be that when you hear talk of Christians coming together and being united and being one, that might sound to you like, whoa, 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 whoa. It sounds like you're going to play down important differences and you just kind of want everybody to get together and have peace, love, and groovy feelings. And I don't know about that. Listen to the Son of God praying for the church. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Verse 22. That they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Jesus is praying that the church, through her life, will, be, will, will live out a unity that you see in the Trinity. And the Trinity keeps coming up in this study. What is the Trinity? It's, it's, that word is not in the Bible. But it's our way of trying to get at all this stuff that is in the Bible. And it's this. There's one God. There are not multiple gods. There's one true God. There are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Each person is fully God. 
And each person is not the other two persons. But they're not three gods. There's one God. The three persons are equal in power and glory. This takes us way out of what we're able to understand. But these three persons, who are not each other, are one God. And here's the tall order Jesus is praying for. That the church will possess and live out a unity that you find in the Trinity itself. Now, the rub is, how do you do that? There have been all kinds of ways of trying to accomplish this. One is, all right, we're going to have unity through structure. That we will structure the church so that basically through the kind of offices it has, through the flow chart that it has, that the church will remain one. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. History has demonstrated that. And I say that with no joy. But it hasn't worked. And even if every Christian on earth, miraculously, today, united into one church body, and and there was no longer any denominational names, that was just the Christian church, we would have spinoffs and sects tomorrow. You can't get it through structure, all right? Well, then some Christians have said, okay, true, history proves that. The way you're going to have unity is through doctrinal formulations. If you can really nail down what together you believe the Bible says, really fine-tune it, really hone it, really agree with it, that will give you unity. No, it won't. And I'll give you a little insight into that. In the New Testament book of James, chapter 2, verse 19... I'm not being irreverent, but there's kind of a funny statement made by James. To the people he's writing to, he says, You believe that there's one God. And that's an extremely theological point, uh, important theological point. And that's, that was rare in the first century. He says this, You believe that there's one God. You do well. The demons believe that and shudder. Meaning that demons, to a large degree, have a very accurate theology. And it scares them to death. But it doesn't change them. They're still diabolical. Some of the most divisive people in the history of the church have been some of the most theologically minded. And it makes me sad to say it, but some of them have been Presbyterian. I mean, if you look at a history of Presbyterianism in America, it looks like the flowchart for a nuclear warhead. I mean, there are just branches and shoot-offs going everywhere. Okay, you don't get it through structure. You don't get it through doctrinal formulation. You get it through the mission. That's what's going to unite the church. You're always going to have lots of denominations, lots of different beliefs, but what's going to unite the church is the mission. And even then, there's different takes on that. One might be, the mission is, go spread the gospel And tell people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. And that will unite us. That's the big mission. Or it might be, no, 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 no. The mission of the church is social justice. And God says, you know, seek justice, love mercy. Let justice roll down like waters. So our job is to go out there and alleviate poverty and take down injustice and take out oppression. That's the big thing. But here's the problem. 
Jesus himself acknowledged that none of that work is ever going to be done. This side of his second coming. He says, there there will always be people who resist you and they will not believe. And he says, there will always be the poor. So you're never going to finish. And if you want to drive a group of people crazy, say, here's your project, keep doing it, and it never gets done. It's just crushing. So the mission can't... Okay, well then, how do you get it? Where does it come from? If we don't have unity within ourselves, where's it going to have to come from? It's going to have to come from outside of ourselves. Where is unity found? In God Himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to listen again to what... This is incredible. Some of the things Jesus prays. Listen to the language of even as, just as. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. All right, that's, that's how high the bar is. To be one like God is one. How do we do that? He's perfect, we're not. How do we have that kind of unity? Listen to what else Jesus prays. Look in verse 23. He says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Now get this. And that, Father, you loved them even as you loved me. I want to read that one more time. He prays, I want them to be one so that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. And look in the verse before that, verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now think about what Jesus is praying. He's acknowledging things that are already true. He's praying that, Lord, I want through them the world to see the gospel What is the gospel? The gospel is this, that through what Jesus accomplished and that we never could accomplish through His perfect life and His death on the cross and His resurrection and now sitting at the right hand of God the Father, through all that, do you know what what we have? The Father loves the church as He loves Jesus. Now, I heard somebody put it this way one time, and I think this nails it, is that there are only three things, or three beings, that God looks at and goes, wow. I mean, He made everything. So what are you going to show Him that impresses Him? The first is Himself. That God sees His own perfections and He enjoys Himself. He brings glory to Himself. The second is the Father looks at the Son. And you see that in the Gospels. Just Jesus is baptized and an audible voice comes from heaven and says, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. I just love Him. He says it again later in the Gospels. But the third is the church. 
that because of what Christ has done for us, we are now in God's sight because of Jesus so lovely, so radiant, so changed, so alive, so Christ-like that the Father looks at the likes of us and says, Wow. I don't even, you know, sometimes preachers need to say to you, I don't know what that verse means. When Jesus says that I have given to the church the glory that you gave to me, I would say to you, I don't fully understand what that means. But it means that what the Father imparted to the Son, being seen as God and the Messiah, we are not God. But that glory that He put on Christ, He has put on the church. And not an abstract church that gets it right out there that doesn't exist, but real churches with real fallible people. The only thing that brings real unity is when the gospel grabs your heart and you experience those things. And I'm not saying just know those things. It's not just know the data. Judas Iscariot knew the data. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He never experienced it. But it's when you experience it that we become one. I mean, I was struck by the fact that this was not prearranged. When Marius was giving his story, he said, Wow, think about it. God loved me from before the foundation of the world. Guess what? In verse 24, Jesus said, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. But what was Marius saying? God treated him the way He treated Jesus. And He's exactly right. And it's when you hear that that you go, yes, if you've experienced that. I've shared this before, but I want to say it again. A joy that I discovered in the last year is when I'm able to go into a midday Wednesday Bible study of basically women at a sister church down the road, Tabernacle Baptist Church. It is basically an African-American church. I don't know if they have any white members. So they have their racial challenges just like we have ours. But there is a Wednesday midday Bible study, and it's usually almost all women. So when I go, I kind of stick out. And <clears throat> But I'm telling you, it was a gift. I don't mean this in a corny way, but it was like a gift from God that the very first time I went... And they're still studying this. They were in Romans chapter 4 and they were talking about justification by faith. And that is a biblical term that if there aren't other terms you learn, I'd want you to know that one because it's just the meat and potatoes of the good news. It's saying that God declares us not guilty because of Christ and He can look at people that break His law and say, you're accepted, you're not guilty. And I'm telling you, For an hour, they studied justification by faith. And it was amazing. I didn't know any of these women. I don't ever bump into them. And I felt at home. At home. And even though we have such different lives, if somebody went in that room and tried to tell them, you know, one day you can stand before God and not need Jesus, they would take you to the woodshed outside and or spontaneously construct a woodshed and then take you into it to say, you can only be right with God through Jesus. Amen. That's unity. It's not everybody unnaturally cramming to the same building. Well, then what are we going to do like Sunday afternoon? And then what are we going to do Monday through Saturday? 
But the real unity is found when, the God, when you experience the gospel. Now, I've got to be brief here. Let me end with this. A friend of mine that I bump into downtown a good bit has a regular tirade. Do you have friends that have tirades? They go over and over with you every time they see it. Okay, this is his tirade almost every time I see him. This, this country's going down the tubes. America's going down the tubes. And we've got, to, we've got to get in touch with these children and change these children's lives. The children are the future, and we're missing the boat. We've, we've got to do it. And after the first 11 times I'd heard this, I finally came up with a response. And the response was, I'm not going to tell you his name, but so-and-so, are you tutoring any children? No. And I'm getting the tirade less now. Because it's great to talk a good game, but what are you going to do? You know, like Texans have an expression, all hat, no cattle. (laughs) It's great to say things like, I just feel like the church is so fragmented and we should be more like a family and less like an institution. I mean, it's a family around the world. Yes, true, great, good, good times, good stuff. I want you to think about the bumper sticker. Think globally, act locally. Are you frustrated that the church is so segregated from 10 to 12 on Sunday mornings? It should grieve us. But have you befriended a Christian of another race? Because it's not like they don't exist. Have you made that friend and really made a friend, not just a Sunday meeting friend or a project friend, but a friend? If you don't, all hat, no cattle. Man, if if the church in the United States really banded together, it could overcome poverty and homelessness in our country. Maybe so. Are you banding together with other believers to change one person's life. And let me say we now. If we are not, big talk. Big talk. I wish our church felt more like a family. I remember when downtown Prez was smaller and now the room is getting more full and it doesn't feel as close-knit. Do you remember names? Do you, in a community group, actually share problems? If you will not be vulnerable, will it feel like a family or like an institution? But I I want to leave you with this exhortation, because I think this is a motivator, and I'll be done. Jesus prays those things, but not once, but twice. He prays, Father, do this so that the world will know you. So the world will believe that you sent me. When we are one, when we give our lives to each other and to other believers in Greenville and beyond, it actually spreads the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father,
take your word, cause it to find good soil in our hearts. Make your people one. Father, if there are those here this morning who do not know you, I pray that they would experience the gospel, not just hear about it, but experience it, believe it, rest in it. They would now find themselves part of one people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.